Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. What makes the aurora so captivating? What can Moonrock tell us about the Earth? And how did a biology teacher end up giving her name to a new astronomical object? This month's Naked Astronomy is an AstroFest special featuring many of the speakers and interesting people involved in AstroFest 2012. Coming up, we'll discuss the new Keplerian revolution. We'll meet Hanny van Arkel, a biology teacher now famous for discovering the eponymous Vortwerp on Galaxy Zoo. And we'll find out why former MP Lembit Opik thinks we should be concerned about asteroid impacts. They should be concerned because these things don't happen very often, but they still happen. You're actually 750 times more likely to die as a result of an asteroid impact than to win the National Lottery on any given weekend. And since somebody's just won £45 million, they should be pretty concerned. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First to the enigmatic aurora. Paul Brecker flew south from the Norwegian Space Centre to explain why the northern lights are not just beautiful, but scientifically fascinating. Well, the aurora is one of the nature's wonders. Uh, it's an amazing light show in the sky and has been marvelling people for thousands of years. And people also, also wonder what it was. You have to really see it yourself. You can see those nice pictures all over the internet, but when you see it moving on the sky, you get, I promise you get goosebumps. This is really amazing. And it's caused by an interaction between particles from the sun in the solar wind interacting with our atmosphere. But how does that lead to this wonderful shimmering light display? Yes, right. It's a particle from the sun that are ejected when there are solar storms. And these particles spend then a few days to reach the Earth. They don't hit the Earth, but they hit what we call the magnetosphere. This is like an invisible magnetic shield we have around us. But the solar storm will then shake up this magnetosphere. Some particles manage to penetrate this kind of cocoon, and then they are kind of streaming along those magnetic field lines, which are usually ending up in the northern regions of the Earth and the southern regions. And when those particles collide with atoms in the atmosphere, they will transfer some energy to these atoms, and these atoms will then emit lights on some certain frequencies or colors. So that's why we get the green and sometimes the red northern lights. So this is basically a gigantic uh, commercial sign because it's exactly the same effect you have in a neon tube or old-fashioned TV. What can we learn from actually observing the aurora itself? First of all, we can learn about the, the interaction between the sun and the earth, which is important because the storm from the sun doesn't just make the aurora. It can affect our te- technology, it can change the climate, but it also tells us something about the, the earth's atmosphere, what atoms is up there and so on, and the dynamics. So it's also important to do science on this, not only to send tourists up to, to watch it. So in a way, it, it acts like a, a spectroscope for us by giving 
the atoms in the upper atmosphere certain amounts of energy, it, it can tell us quite a lot about our own atmosphere, even though its original source is the sun. Yes, that's right. And, and by measuring the spectra of the, the aura, uh, you can actually... I mean, using spectra is like taking a fingerprint of the gas that's up there, so it will tell you exactly what elements... Uh, in this case, it's usually oxygen and nitrogen. It's the, the gas that's glowing. Um, there's lots of dynamics up there, and by studying the aurora and the dynamics, that can give us a better way of predicting, for instance, how space weather f- affecting GPS, which is used more and more to do... Uh, navigation. So it's important to understand these things if you want to also understand the effects on the Earth. So we can learn quite a lot from the aurora, but I imagine it's only fairly recently that we've actually worked out how it occurs in the first place. What do people think the aurora was before we understood this link between the Earth and the Sun? Well, first of all, people thought it was a bad sign. I mean, from war or sickness or and lots of culture took their kids inside and everything. But even 800 years ago, there are some stories in some Viking books in Norway that uh, it was maybe reflected sunlight, and they had some scientific thoughts about this. But it was first in um, about 100 years ago when uh, Christian Birkeland, a Norwegian scientist, actually had this theory it was the sun that sparked the aurora, and even built his own uh, small world in a glass box, a vacuum tank, and managed to create artificial aurora, which proved his theory. But we couldn't actually prove it before we, we got into space. And that's when we can see the aurora from space and, and understand this interaction with the sun. We should be expecting to see some fairly dramatic aurorae in the next couple of years because it's related to the activity of the sun. It seems to get actually quite a long way down from the North Pole. In fact, we've had it over northern England relatively recently. As the activity steps up, should we expect to see it even further down, or do we just see a more intense display in the northern reaches? You will expect to see it uh, more of it in these latitudes, but also further south. And if you go back in history again, it's actually Galileo that gave it its scientific name. And uh, the aurora borealis means the red door dawn of the north. And uh, why the red? That's because when you get really activity on the sun and the aurora moves further south, it gets very red on the top, and he saw only the red part of the mountains. So, yes, uh, the next few years, actually very often after the solar max, is the best time for, for the aurora. So you will probably see lots of more aurora every winter here in the UK too. Solar physicist Paul Brecker from the Norwegian Space Centre. The Kepler Space Observatory was named after Johannes Kepler, the prolific 17th century scientist famed for identifying the laws of planetary motion. It launched in 2009 and has led to a number of remarkable discoveries. Don Kurtz, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Central Lancashire, believes that we're on the verge of a new Keplerian revolution. The Kepler mission's main goal is to answer the question, how common are Earth-like planets in the galaxy? Now, Earth-like means rocky planets that are far enough from their star that water could be liquid, because ultimately the big question is, are we alone? That is always one of those big questions that we ask. Scientifically, is it really that important that we find out if we're alone, or are there other questions about the interesting physics that are just as important? Well, Ben, I think the big question for everybody is, are we alone? That, that's the, one of the really big questions, like, what's the nature of consciousness? How did life get started? Are we the only life in the universe? What's the purpose of life, the universe, and everything? Those are the big questions. 
the fundamental physics that we can get out of it, our understanding of stars and planets, formation of solar systems for us astronomers is where the action is. That's what we're really excited about with the big question far down the line because we're just on a step along that way. If you think of the first Keplerian revolution, Kepler didn't know where that was going to take anybody, take humans, but he was trying to discover how the planets move around the sun, and he did. It allowed Isaac Newton two generations later than from fundamental physics when Newton, almost as a boy, invented gravity, invented calculus, invented his laws of motion, and calculated how the planet should move. He knew he was right because of Kepler. As we went down through the centuries, we then learned how far away the sun was. We didn't know how it made its energy. We then discovered how the sun made its energy. And I would say in this century, the 21st century, we humans will conquer the engineering for that, and hydrogen fusion will be the source of energy for all of humanity. Kepler couldn't see that he was a step to that. And I can't see now what the fundamental astrophysics we're doing is a step to somewhere down in the future. I hope one of the big questions is to find out if we're alone in the universe. But along the way, we want to answer these little questions about stellar physics. And Kepler itself is looking not for the planets themselves, but it's looking at the light from the stars. Yeah, the planets themselves, Ben, are not visible. They're tiny. And in the glare of the light of the stars with the Kepler telescope, which is a one-meter telescope, we couldn't see that. What we can see is the shadow of the planet when it passes in front of the star. That doesn't actually seem like a lot of information to take. I know that we can look at a dip as a planet transits the star. That can tell us, especially if it's regular, then it tells us there's something going round it. But how do we learn more than just there is a planet there and we can tell from the dip? Well, you may have been stunned yesterday when I showed a NASA movie at the talk you came to where we showed a movie of flying low over a planet with great canyons on it and molten lava flowing, material coming off the surface. All of that from a little dip in the amount of light that the star is sending us? And the answer is yes. The little dip in the light tells us how big the planet is compared to the star. The planet blocks out an area as big as it is of the starlight, and that causes the light to drop. So we then know the radius of the planet. Then from the ground, other astronomers will look at that star using big telescopes on the ground and using the Doppler shift, measure the velocity of the star as it wobbles about the planet. Now, many people listening may not know, but as the planets orbit the sun, the sun also orbits the planets. Now, the planets do most of the moving. They're small. But, for example, Jupiter and sun have a balance point outside the surface of the sun. And in the 12 years Jupiter goes around that balance point, the sun does also. And from a distant star, you could see the sun wobble about that point with this Doppler effect. We then do that from the ground, and it tells us the mass of the planet. Once you've got the mass and the radius, you know the density, and you could say, aha, that thing's rocky. In the case of the movie I showed you yesterday with this molten lava planet, that planet orbits its star in less than 24 hours vastly closer to its star, which is similar to the sun, than Mercury is to the sun. And as a consequence, we can easily calculate that it must be so hot the rock would melt. And so although that supposition that this planet has got molten lava flowing through canyons, it's very informed supposition. And we can derive a lot of information from that little bit of light that gets lost when the planet passes across the star. So we're taking a relatively small amount of data and being very efficient with it, being very intelligent with it, and using our knowledge of physics, making some inferences that can really tell us a great deal about the other planets out in the universe. Yes, that's true. But I would like to step back from that. You call this a relatively small amount of data. 
And I'd like to put that in a little perspective. You, you, listeners listening can't hear how old I am. You can hear I have a North American accent, even though I am British. I'm one of these immigrants you read so much about. I'm 63 years old, and when I was young and spending thousands of nights at the telescope, I was measuring star brightnesses to very high precision, one star at a time, all night long. And then the sun would come up, the clouds would come the next day, and when I could get another night, all night long, same star, one star. The Kepler mission's looking at 150,000 stars simultaneously. It has no weather. The sun doesn't get in the way. There's no stopping the data. It goes for years, almost continuously, and its precision is 100 or 1,000 times better than anything we could do from the ground. To me, that is such an overwhelming flood of data, not a little bit of data, that everything we look at has got discoveries in it, and most of it we just don't have time to look at yet. There have been some very exciting discoveries as well. We've found whole solar systems. We've found some very unique, interesting, and different-looking planets. What do you think are the key things that Kepler's found so far? Well, the main goal of Kepler, of course, is to find the rocky planet in the habitable zone, and it has succeeded in doing that for the first time. That was announced December 2011 at the first Kepler Science Conference in California. That planet's a little bit bigger than the Earth, but it's the right distance from its star to have water. Kepler has also found planets as small as Mars. It's finding planets smaller than the Earth, but so far those have been too close to their star to have liquid water. The reason for that is, is that Kepler was launched in March of 2009, and if you want to find a planet like the Earth orbiting a star like the Sun at the right place, then that takes a year. And so you see a little dip in the starlight, and there's the planet. You think it's the right one, but you need to wait for a year to see if it happens again. And if it's in a solar system, things are not perfectly regular. You'd really rather wait another year to be sure. And so there are lots of possibilities just sitting there. Kepler's getting ready to announce these, but they're being cautious and waiting until they've seen it repeatedly. And we're now, as we come three years into the mission, those flood of data will come out, and those really interesting other Earths are going to be announced probably this year. How do we handle all this data? I know that projects like Galaxy Zoo have been set up because the human eye is extremely good at spotting things that computers simply can't. Are we doing the same thing with data from Kepler? The answer is absolutely yes. Chris Lintot has been managing that and he's done a wonderful job of it. Uh, With the Kepler mission, we're using automated routines to try to find the planets. But now all of the first year and a half of data from the Kepler mission for all the stars is public. And... Galaxy Zoo, it's now called Planet Hunters for that portion of it, has put that data out so the public can get at it, and people look at it. Now, for the planets that are in multiple solar systems, lots of planets, the transits, the dips, don't come at a regular rate, and the computer's not so good at finding that. The human eye is, and already people who've just logged on to that and become planet hunters have found new planets. They're also finding interesting kinds of new stars that we haven't picked up. And so the amateurs out there, anybody listening right now, log on to planethunters.org, and you can find planets too. You can find interesting new kinds of pulsating stars, variable stars that the professionals are missing. And you tell us, we'll get all excited and get our big telescopes out and go follow it up and find out what physics we can learn from it. (laughs) Professor Don Kurtz from the University of Central Lancashire. All our guests in today's programme were brought together for AstroFest, an annual celebration of space science. To find out more, I spoke to Ian Ridpath, astronomy writer, editor and broadcaster. Well, it's an annual astronomy fair. It's organised by the uh, monthly magazine called Astronomy Now, and it's been going for uh, 20 years now. And it's a mixture of trade stands 
talks, and I'm responsible for the talks which take place in the convention hall over the two days, so I have to find something like 14 speakers to fill uh, two days of events in the conference hall. What sort of people come along to Astrofest? Is it an event for working researchers in astronomy, or is it an event for whoever wants to come? Well, it's an event where amateur astronomers can meet working researchers in astronomy, and I I think that is uh, one of its strengths. I always say that our typical uh, attendee is is a well-informed amateur astronomer. They'll come along and find the latest telescopes and and other bits of kit which they can ogle at, and uh, you you usually read on somewhere on on Twitter that someone says, oh, I went to Astrofest and I spent far more than I intended to. I saw that new eyepiece or something. So they, they can come along and see telescopes try them out, talk to informed salesmen because uh, you, you, you can't always find uh, at the drop of a hat someone who knows a lot about the practicalities of using an amateur telescope so that they can see what they want to buy, see things that perhaps they never knew existed and if they want they can also, uh, for the cost of an extra ticket, they can come in and see the talks that we have from some from top amateurs but a, a lot of them from the, uh, you know, the very best researchers in, in astronomy. How do you choose the the topics that you're going to cover in the talks? Well, I try and um, find a topical peg for for things. So, you know, there's been some new events, and in, in particular this year, one very obvious example is the first talk that we had from Don Kurtz of the University of Central Lancashire about the Kepler space mission, on which he is one of the uh, uh, research scientists. And Kepler has been in the news recently because there was a, a big conference in America, and they released a lot of their early data, which is information about planets around other stars. You know, an extrasolar planets is one of the most exciting topics. And when I got first got interested in astronomy, the, the possibility of being able to find planets around other stars seemed absolutely impossible. And, and now they're finding them literally by the bucket load. And what to me is the interesting thing is that uh, although there are a lot of them, there are not a lot of them like the Earth. And, and although every time a new planet is announced, everyone says, oh, is, is this going to be like the Earth? Does this in- increase the chances of, of life out, out there? I always think to myself, well, no, because it's actually making our own solar system look less common rather than than more common. As the statistics improve, then maybe we will find more planets like our own Earth. But at the moment, the Earth is actually starting to look really a little bit special. As well as talks about exoplanets, we've had Lucy Green talking about solar physics. We've had talks about the aurora. There's dark matter talks coming up. So it's a very broad range of topics. Do you try to make sure that it is balanced and broad? You have the physics, the astronomy, the cosmology. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I, I sort of think of this as a like a, uh, a talking yearbook of astronomy, which is why I mentioned you know, lo- looking for topical pegs. Um, but we you know, do go back to some of, of the basics. I mean, Simon Singh's talk today about the, the Big Bang was really just you know, the Big Bang for beginners. Um, so we do try to cater for people who are less informed, and you know, it's always nice to see young people and, uh, and, and females as well, because you know, we are very well aware of the fact that uh, women are underrepresented in astronomy. And today we had two very good role models in Lucy Green, the solar physicist, and Hanny Van Arkel, the, the citizen scientist who's actually a teacher, a biology teacher. But she made a, a great discovery by looking at photographs of, of the universe through the uh, Galaxy Zoo project. So it shows that you know, people w- without any specific knowledge can actually make 
discoveries in astronomy. And that's always been one of the great things about astronomy, is that amateurs can make contributions they have done over the years. And although perhaps an astronomer looking through with his own telescope can't see very much these days, the amount of data that's now online, which you as a citizen can mine, means that opening up discoveries to the average amateur astronomer, there's actually probably more opportunity now than there ever has been. Are there any topics that are particularly close to your heart that you always try and squeeze into AstroFest? Well, I hope um, I'm, I'm a generalist. As um, someone uh, once said years ago, that as the older I get, I, I know less and less about more and more. So I, I feel that I do try and, and, and keep a, you know, as, as broad a spectrum and, and we have, you know, we don't expect people to come to every talk because, you know, they, they want to wander around the show and talk to their friends as well. But this time, you know, sometimes you do find themes emerging and, and this time the, the, the sun has been something of a theme because we're coming up to solar maximum in the next 12 months and as solar maximum comes along, the effects of the sun, you know, the explosions cause coronal mass ejections and the effects they have on the Earth start to come into the news and, and also we're now seeing more aurorae so we've had uh, a, a specialist from Norway where of course they see the aurorae particularly well being right under the auroral oval to come and talk about uh, these wonderful northern lights which you can see so that's been very much the theme this time talking about the sun and its effects on earth and, and just the beauty of the night sky when there's an aurora Ian Ridpath This is a Naked Astronomy AstroFest special, and still to come we'll find out why bits of rock from the moon can tell us about the history of the Earth, and we'll discover the strange objects that bridge the gap between the biggest planets and the smallest stars, the brown dwarfs. But first, how can you get a new astronomical object named after you? Hanny van Arkel, a biology teacher from the Netherlands, has achieved just that with the eponymous Henny's Vortwerp. But how does a biology teacher become a citizen scientist in astronomy? Yeah, that was uh, Queen's guitarist and astrophysicist Brian May. He mentioned on his website about this project, uh, Galaxy Zoo, which is an online citizen science project. And he said you could help scientists, even though if you're not a scientist yourself, uh, you could help. And the job was looking at beautiful pictures of the universe. So uh, I signed up. Chris Lintott has been on the show before telling us about how Galaxy Zoo works, what you can do, the sorts of things you can discover, but you discovered something quite special and a bit different. Tell me about that. Yes, exactly. After uh, a week of classifying or so on on this project, I got a picture on my screen and I wasn't really sure what was on it. Uh, So I asked Chris Lintott, indeed, and um, he and a couple of colleagues came back saying, we don't know. And then they started investigating it. So what did it look like? We are used to the idea of these Galaxy Zoo images being slightly fuzzy blobs. You might see spirals, you might see bars. What was it that stood out? It had the characteristics of an irregular galaxy because they showed pictures of what you could expect and the irregular galaxies have an irregular shape and they're blue, which is which goes for the forward as well, uh, except it's a darker kind of blue and the, the shape somehow didn't quite... I, I can't explain it better than quite feel like an irregular galaxy. But I didn't think I discovered something new. I was just wondering, hey, what, what's this then? And, and that's why I asked. 
And that then set some wheels in motion to do some serious science and to really discover what this is. What was the next step? Once you'd discovered it, you'd brought it to their attention, how did it move on? Well, at first they thought it might be uh, a camera glitch, an, an artifact, but then uh, they looked at other pictures and it was actually there, it was real. So nobody knew what it was and uh, that's where they said, you know, we should look into this. And they got uh, friends from all over the world and different telescopes to look at it. And the more we found out about it, the stranger it got, actually. So um, I've, I've one email from Chris, I remember, I'm going to quote him. He said, this makes no sense. Excellent. So you took images from different telescopes, you had a look. What do we now think this object really is? Um, they call it a light echo. It was kind of lit up by the centre of the galaxy next to it, which has the slightly boring name, IC2497. So we kind of see the history of the AGN of that galaxy in Honey's foreword. So when you say a light echo, it's, it's reflecting light from an energetic source of sorts. What do we think that is, and is it still going? Light echo is, um, is a name we call it, but it's not just an echo, because it is, Honey's Warwick was a patch of gas that was lit up by uh, a cone coming from the galaxy, uh, but it is now emitting its own energy. So that's the light echo theory. So it's been sort of charged up by something in the galaxy, and now, much like glow-in-the-dark stickers, it's continuing to give out its own energy. That's what we see. Can we identify what it was in the galaxy that was doing that, that gave it the energy in the first place? Yeah, the, the active galactic nucleus, in, in the, they call the quasar, if you look at it, from Honey's Warp. So it, it's a centre that sends out the energy and that lit up Honey's Warp. Indeed, like the glow-in-the-dark things, yeah. Do we think these things are, are reasonably common? Is it purely coincidence that we spotted one in the Galaxy Zoo data and there are actually lots out there? Or is it quite a unique item itself? Honey's Warwarp so far is the only one, so it's, it's quite unique. It's literally one in a million because we had a million uh, Sloan pictures, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and it only showed up in one of those pictures and it's the only one known so far. We did find 19 smaller versions of what looks like Honey's Warwarp gas, but that's the gas is in the galaxies and Honey's Warwarp is outside the galaxy. So we've been able to find out quite a lot about this very interesting, unique item that you discovered purely by chance. Has that given us any further scientific answers or or even given us new questions to ask? Uh, It has. It actually, looking at the Vorwerpius, which is Dutch for a little object, we can now see how common it is for the quasars to to become active and shut down. And uh, their life uh, cycle is about 20,000 to 200,000 years. And uh, this is a total new technique. We didn't know that before, Honey's Vorwerp. So you're a biology teacher, but this has obviously given you a a taste for astronomy. What's the next step for you? Do you go back to teaching biology and do more citizen science, or are you trying to get a bit more involved? Um, no, I quite like it like this. It's quite a big hobby already. Um, I do love it. It's taught me a lot and uh, it's a great community as well. And uh, I love traveling the world and telling people they can, like me, contribute to science without uh, having a scientific background. But I do also love my teaching job. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll do both. Sounds like the best of both worlds. That was citizen scientist Henny Van Arkel. The moon may not be as novel or exciting as strange green things in deep space, but we still have a lot to learn from our nearest neighbour. Planetary geologist Noah Petro from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. Well, I think that people should care about the moon because the moon helps us better understand our own history, the geologic history of the Earth. If you look at the surface of the Earth, 
it's very, very young, relatively speaking, because of all of the great processes. We've got weather, erosion, plate tectonics that act to destroy the surface or, or to resurface the Earth uh, over geologic time. The moon, however, hasn't had those similar processes, those erosive processes. Primarily, the two big properties are processes that have affected the moon's surface, been impact cratering and volcanism. Um, and because we have samples of the lunar surface from Apollo, we know how old some of those surfaces are, and we know that they're very, very old. The oldest rocks brought back from Apollo are about 4.5 billion years old. Uh, on the Earth, finding rocks that old is very, very scarce, very, very difficult. And so by studying the moon and how the moon's surface has evolved, it gives us an insight into the processes that have affected the Earth early on in its history. Uh, but because the Earth has an atmosphere, impact craters get erased, and we don't see the same processes on the Earth. So the moon affords us this window into how the, the Earth evolved um, and the processes like impact cratering that occurred in, in our little corner of the solar system. You mentioned volcanism mm -hmm. as a, a driving force for the surface of the moon. I think people think of the moon as a large, dead lump of rock, and we wouldn't dream of there being volcanoes active on the surface. How long ago was this? The moon isn't quite like Hawaii or Iceland where there's active volcanism today, that we know of anyway, but with the Apollo samples have told us or, or tell us is that the main period of volcanism was 3.5, 3.8 billion years ago. That was when sort of the moon was most volcanically active, at least in terms of what we can see on the surface. Later in geologic time, the amount of volcanism decreased. Now, we see some volcanic surfaces that are probably a billion years old. That may be the largest big-scale volcanism that occurred on the moon. However, we're now seeing very, very small areas, maybe a couple kilometers, 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers, that appear to have been volcanically active, potentially much more recently. Now, when I say much more recently, that's not you know, three years ago. That's you know, maybe 500 million years ago. So while the moon doesn't have active volcanism today, it did stretch over a very broad period of time. And so we can study volcanoes on the Earth to get better insights of how volcanism happens here and then apply what we learn to better understand the moon and its interior. There are a lot of techniques we can use here on Earth to study what's actually happening under the ground. And also we can very easily send somebody to pick up a sample of rock and have a very close look at that. However, the amount of rock we've got back from the moon is quite limited and clearly it's not an easy job to send somebody up to collect a bit more. How do lunar geologists cope? Uh, <laughs> well, we're very lucky in that we do have samples from the six Apollo landing sites and from the three Soviet Luna sample return missions. All told, we brought back about 846 kilograms of rock. And you know, those are the most valuable, perhaps the most valuable geologic samples we have on the Earth because, again, they offer us this window into what was happening at least at those sites. And we take what we understand from those rocks and apply it to the rest of the moon. We also have lunar meteorites. We have a number of, uh, of rocks that have been blasted off the surface of the moon because of impacts and have been transported to the Earth. So we, we, we have rocks that we know they've come from the moon. We don't know where they come from the moon. So those help frame the picture that we know that the moon has to have acted in a way to create that rock. So that helps constrain some things. But we also have, at our advantage, is a, a large suite of remote sensing observations, spacecraft that have orbited the moon, made measurements from lunar orbit, uh, that allow us to understand the composition of surfaces, uh, the surface properties of the whole entire moon. And so, again, leveraging off of what we know from the Apollo sites, we can 
attempt to understand the rest of the moon with samples and the remote sensing. Ideally, you know, we would love to be able to go back to the moon and pick up that rock, this rock, that rock from all over. We don't have that capability, but because we have the remote sensing and, you know, we have an understanding of how we think the moon operates, although that's constantly evolving too, uh, we can attempt to understand how, for instance, the far side of the moon evolved, uh, even though all of our samples from Apollo and Luna come from the near side. But we also know that the Apollo sites, the samples that we have, are not representative of the entire moon. We know there are places where there are compositions that are totally unlike things that we have from Apollo. But we're very lucky that we have the samples. You know, people who study Mars are limited to a handful of Martian meteorites. People who study Venus are limited to a little bit of remote sensing data. We're very fortunate, but uh, you know, we also want to get more. <laughs> It's thought that the moon was created when the young Earth collided with something probably around the size of Mars, Mm -hmm. obviously liquefying both the Earth and the new moon. Is it reasonable to assume that the processes and the external influences since that event have been basically the same for both the moon and the Earth? Absolutely. The moon's surface has a, a pretty significant record of impacts that struck the moon, we can assume that the same number of impacts or more, you know, the, the impacts are occurring on the Earth as well, uh, particularly early on, when the, the, the period of heavy bombardment on the moon and the largest impact craters were forming, when that period ended, that's when on the Earth we see a rise in more complex life. And so potentially the moon is telling us that these heavy, these big impacts were sort of prohibiting life from really flourishing on the Earth. Once that declined, and, you know, the Earth's atmosphere started protecting it from smaller impacts, life could take hold on the Earth. And, of course, what we understand about the moon and the Earth, we apply to understand all of the other planets as well. So we get this window into really the whole solar system's history just by studying the moon. So there's clearly a great deal that we can learn. But are there any big outstanding science questions about these processes or about how the moon got to be in the state it is today. Yeah, there's definitely many outstanding science questions that are left unresolved on the moon. Everybody should have their favorite unresolved question. Personally, I'm most interested in understanding what was going on at the very earliest history, in particular when the the largest impact basin on the moon, the South Pole Lake Basin, it's 2,500 kilometers in diameter, it's on the far side of the moon, when that formed. It's presumed to be the oldest basin based on the number of basins that formed on top of it, so we think it's the oldest, but when that basin formed relative to all of the other basins will really tell us about what was going on then. Was there a period of time when lots of impact, large impact craters were forming, all clustered around 3.8 to 4 billion years ago? So is there a narrow window of time when these events were happening, or was it spread out over 500, 600 million years? So by understanding when, when that oldest, largest event occurred, will really allow us to better understand the process. And again, all of these large impacts are happening on all bodies across the solar system. And so by understanding when, when that period of heavy bombardment maybe was at its peak or started would really allow us to understand what was going on uh, at that sort of earliest time of planet formation. Noah Petro from the Goddard Space Flight Center. And if we can look to the moon to learn more about Earth, then can we look to our nearest galaxy, Andromeda, to learn more about the Milky Way? For Andy Newsom, director of the National Schools Observatory, it's a problem that deserves attention. The problem we're trying to solve is what's actually happening in our next-door neighbour galaxy, because we don't really understand it well enough to be sure. 
as our next-door neighbour galaxy, presumably it's one that we can see quite well. Yeah, it's close enough that you can actually try and do it properly, but it's still far enough away that picking out individual stars, particularly in the middle, is a bit of a challenge. What do we think might be going on? Why is it so interesting? It's mainly interesting because it should be just like the Milky Way. It's a similar sort of galaxy. It's a big spiral galaxy. So if it turns out that all of the details are similar to the Milky Way, the chances are all galaxies are like that. But if it turns out that some of the details are different from the Milky Way, it probably means that all galaxies are different. Right, and that perhaps we are unique? Uh, We are unique, or or at least um, there's more to going on than we thought there was. Basically, we always assume that all galaxies are the same, because we can only see one properly, the Milky Way. But if we can see one other one properly, we'll actually know whether all galaxies are the same. We're in a similar situation with solar systems, of course. We've always had one example, and we've thought that was fairly normal, but now the more and more planets we discover around other stars, the more we're thinking, well, perhaps it's not as simple as we thought. Yeah, exactly the same sort of problem. Yeah. When you've only got one example of something, it's pretty easy to assume it's all like that. We have the same problem in cosmology with only one universe, but there's less you can do about that one. So what are we doing to find out what's going on in Andromeda? Well, there's two ways you can do it. You can look at the outskirts, and there you can pick out individual bright stars and study them in detail. But if you want to look at the core, which is where the older stars tend to be, then it's just too crowded. You'll have tens of thousands of stars on each pixel on the camera. So studying the individual stars is almost impossible unless something makes them stand out. And you want to be careful that the thing that's making them stand out is not because they're weird, because then you don't learn much. You want normal stars. So we're trying to make the ones stand out just because they happen to coincidentally line up with another star whose gravity magnifies it. So you're sort of using gravity and other stars to randomly pick stars and say, OK, that's normal, let's see what's going on. So we're using this gravitational lensing effect to make the stars appear to be a bit closer than they are, and that means that we can then learn a bit more? It's more a case of um, the lensing will change as the stars move relative to each other. So what you basically get is a slight change in brightness of one of your pixels, and that all of that change in brightness will be due to one star. So you can work out what that star is, and you can do a bit of statistics. How many lensing events do you get? Um, what kind of colour of stars do they pick out? Do you see any evidence of binary stars and so on? And that allows us to work out whether the situation is similar in the core of Andromeda as it is in the core of the Milky Way. You say you'll see a change in in one pixel. Is it really a case of looking for individual pixel changes or can we see well enough to be able to distinguish separate stars? To be honest, it would be lovely if I could just do it in one pixel. Actually, because of the way the atmosphere works, the light tends to get spread out over several, so it makes it a lot nastier. And depending on the weather, the number of pixels that get spread out over changes. So actually the biggest challenge is dealing with the effects that the atmosphere and things throws at you from night to night to work out that you are only seeing one star. You're not just coincidentally seeing two stars, which happen to vary normally because they're variable stars, and mess up your data. That's the biggest challenge. What sort of things are you seeing so far? Does it look like we are special and unique, or does it look like galaxies are just galaxies? I I would love to give you an answer, but we're about four years into a ten-year project, so the only answer I can give you at the moment is, well, it doesn't look really weird. So what's going to be the next stage? Do you need to collect more data, or is it now just a case of churning through the huge amounts of data that I know astronomers tend to collect? Yeah, we've got about four years' worth of data using four or five telescopes around the world, pretty much working 24 hours a day, so we've got a very large amount of data to draw through, so the next year or two we're just going to be trying to make sense of that. Once we've got that, we want to go back and continue the observations, giving us a longer baseline to try and tie down some of the the, the more subtle details but that should give us a pretty good idea of whether we're going in the right direction at least. Andy Newsom, director of the National Schools Observatory.
This is an AstroFest special from Naked Astronomy. Still to come, we have a special treat for those that did attend AstroFest. Lembit Opik, who had to cancel his talk on near-Earth objects at the last minute, managed to find time to explain to me why he thinks NEOs should be a priority. But first, brown dwarfs are the intriguing objects that fill the gap between small stars and giant gas planets. Smaller, cooler, and darker than proper stars, they lead a relatively quiet life, but, according to David Pinfield from the University of Hertfordshire, remain very interesting. Well, there's a few reasons why they're interesting. The first of which is that uh, very faint brown dwarf-like objects uh, represent the uh, low-mass extremes of the star formation process. And so by finding out how many of these things exist and looking at their properties, we get to more fully understand the, uh, the process of how all stars and brown dwarfs form. The second area in which, uh, in which the study of brown dwarfs is very interesting is that uh, their atmospheres are extremely cool, similar temperatures, in fact, to uh, not only to very low-mass stars but also to giant planets. And trying to understand the physics of these kind of ultra-cool atmospheres. This is something which you can do with brown dwarfs very well because we can understand the structure of brown dwarfs, we can measure their composition, and then we can figure out how their atmospheres work. We can't do that so easily with extrasolar planets because they have more complicated structures and they may have rocky cores that we can't measure And, of course, there's a big bright star nearby, so it becomes more difficult to measure their properties anyway. When people think of stars, they think of enormous nuclear reactors burning away bright and hot. But what are the defining characteristics of a a brown dwarf? So brown dwarfs, in contrast to, uh, to stars, don't have ongoing nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium in their cores. So whereas stars stabilise themselves through this hydrogen burning, through these, these nuclear interactions, and have a very large generation of energy through that process, brown dwarfs don't have that going on. And as a result, a brown dwarf just cools and fades over time. So young brown dwarfs could look similar to low-mass stars and have temperatures of perhaps two or 3,000 Kelvin, but... As brown dwarfs age and become a few billion years old, the situation changes quite radically because they cool down from thousands of degrees to just a few hundred degrees and even as cool as a few tens of degrees. So you can have brown dwarfs with atmospheres that are similar temperature to the atmosphere of the Earth. So do they just fall on a a spectrum with the different types of stars leading down into the gas giant type planets? Or is there something very particular about the conditions in which they form or the materials that they form from that gives them these properties? Not specifically, really. The formation of brown dwarfs is quite a, a complex issue. It's not really clear if the brown dwarfs that we see and identify as brown dwarfs actually formed like stars or whether some of them formed in ways more similar to the way that planets form. You can't really turn the clock back and watch in detail as the object forms, and it can be very difficult to infer how it's formed by measurements that you can make on very faint objects. So my feeling is that the provenance of the Brandorf population is quite diverse, and in that sense... It's a different situation to stars because we kind of know how stars form. And uh, when we look at planets, 
at least including our own solar system planets, we kind of have a reasonable idea how these would form as well. So, so brown dwarfs, although they have fairly simple structures, they have quite a complex and likely diverse origin. We can also learn a lot about the bigger, hotter stars from the ends of their lives where they explode in supernovae. What happens at the end of the life of a brown dwarf? So really, brown dwarfs don't have an end to their life. One might think of a brown dwarf as as an immortal star in that sense. So they just continue to cool and fade with time. You might have a a brown dwarf that started life with a temperature of perhaps 3,000 degrees, and by the age of the sun it had cooled to perhaps 300 degrees in many billions of years' time, it could have cooled to a few tens of degrees, and eventually it will cool to a point where it becomes almost invisible and you can't really see it. So at that point, you'd, have, you'd kind of have a dark star. They never actually end their lives in the kind of impressive display that you see from supernovae or, or planetary nebulae. So, so in that sense, they just go on. You've brought up an interesting point there by saying that as they get colder, they essentially get harder to spot. What are the problems with looking for these cold objects out in space? There's two problems, really. Cooler objects have much fainter luminosity or brightness. And also, cooler objects emit longer wavelength radiation. So if you have extremely faint, extremely cool objects, you have to look at quite long wavelengths, and you have to have a very sensitive telescope. Now, in the infrared, for instance, in order to be able to measure anything at all at mid-infrared wavelengths, for example, you you have to be above the atmosphere, because the Earth's atmosphere glows with infrared light and also blocks out many wavelengths of infrared light. And so, unless you put your telescope above that atmosphere, then it can't really cope. And so that's a very difficult and challenging and expensive thing to do. And particularly if if you're wanting to put a very large telescope above the atmosphere in order to detect these extremely faint things, then the two problems together really spell out a, a scientific and a financial challenge. And how are we actually doing with spotting these? Much like exoplanets, it seems that we didn't see any of them until barely a few years ago, and now they're turning up in very large numbers. How are we doing, and what do you expect to see over the next few years? The discovery of large populations of these objects is is very much governed by the availability of of new technology. So the reason that we've found dozens and, and now several hundred warm brown dwarfs in the past few years is because we've had improvements in ground-based CCD technology, allowing us to detect these things not only at optical wavelengths, but also, importantly, in the near-infrared. And um, with the recent launch of the, uh, the WISE satellite, the uh, mid-infrared all-sky survey, this has allowed us to identify the new population of wide dwarfs, or, albeit only half a dozen at the moment, But by making use of this new technology, these are going to be turning up in in significantly larger numbers in the coming couple of years. And what scientific questions do you think we'll be able to answer once we find more of these and probe them and learn more about their properties? One question that I find particularly interesting is um, what happens when you get water droplet clouds forming in the atmospheres of cool brown dwarfs? The coolest brown dwarfs that we have at the moment known as as Y-dwarfs, they have very strong ammonia, 
They also have very strong water vapour. In the future, if we move down to even cooler temperatures, we would expect to see water droplet clouds or, or rain, if you like, condensing out in the atmospheres of, of these objects. These, these, this would most likely require a new additional spectral type, even beyond the wide dwarfs. But I think that understanding the physics of how these rainy or really, really cool atmospheres work, this will be important not only in terms of understanding the physics of brown dwarf populations, but also in trying to understand how extrasolar giant planets, how their atmospheres work, and in turn using that knowledge to, to measure the properties of future planet populations. David Pinfield from the University of Hertfordshire. Finally for this month, the missing Astrofest talk. Former Member of Parliament Lembit Opik sadly had to pull out of Astrofest at the last minute, so he missed out on his opportunity to explain why space fascinates him. I became interested in astronomy because my grandfather was a professional astronomer and you could really say while other people were reading Janet and John books I was reading The Oscillating Universe and and quite literally from the age of four or five I was already discussing with my dad where we came from in the galactic sense and uh, I was fairly up to speed with Big Bang Theory by about the age of ten and I remember that quite clearly. And you have allowed this interest to to spill over into your professional life as well in that you're now campaigning about what you see as a very serious issue. Tell me a bit more about that. My grandfather was one of the first people to postulate the existence of the Oort cloud and I think it should be called the Oort cloud or at least the Oort cloud. I'd compromise on that. And that's important because he was also a pioneer of the idea that the Earth had been hit by asteroids and comets many times in the past and that it was still happening. People thought it was a cranky idea at the time, but actually science has caught up with that. So I chose to carry on the same sort of campaign when I was a member of Parliament and try and get British politicians to invest in British astronomy to basically safeguard ourselves from what is literally a catastrophic global threat. We know that asteroid impacts have definitely happened in the past. We see evidence all over Earth, even more evidence on the moon, of course, where it hasn't eroded away. But it very much seems like a a distant threat, something that happened in the past, might happen in the future, but I don't think there's any fear of it happening again. Should we be frightened? Most people aren't concerned about asteroid impacts. They don't phone up their boss at work and say, I'm not coming in today because I'm a little bit depressed about Tunguska, which is a fairly famous example of of an impact not so long ago. They should be concerned because these things don't happen very often, maybe less often than uh, they did in the past as the solar system has cleaned itself out a bit, but they still happen you're actually 750 times more likely to die as a result of an asteroid impact than to win the National Lottery on any given weekend. And since somebody's just won £45 million, they should be pretty concerned. (laughs) So what were you proposing we should do? I assume you need the scientists and the politicians to get involved so that we can approach it from every possible angle. My expectation, if you like, my demand, my requirement is twofold. The politicians need to fund some serious investment in tracking these objects, and then the astronomers need to be given the space to do the right thing. Uh, And the irony is, I convinced the government to do a report on this called the Near-Earth Object Task Group Report on Near-Earth Objects, uh, as much as over a decade ago now thinking about it. And of the 14 recommendations in the government's own report, they've actually only implemented half of one of them. So... If stroke when we do get hit, there's no satisfaction in saying I told you so if London becomes a smouldering heap of indolence by our politicians. 
So what were, if you could give me a, an example of some of the 14 recommendations that you put forward? The key recommendations from the task force report, and once again I stress a government-sponsored report, were to invest in a public information programme for the citizens of Britain to understand the issue better, to work internationally on a network of telescopes which can be ground-based, it's not rocket science in a literal sense, uh, to track these objects, and thirdly, to really quantify the threat and make sure that we're prepared in the event of some object being identified that's coming our way. As I say, half of one of those was implemented. A little bit of money was given to the British National Space Centre, but nothing to SpaceGuard UK, for example, a dedicated organisation run by Jay Tate, to work on this. And I think that that's irresponsible. So just going back to the, the Oort cloud, or the Oort opic cloud, as you would prefer, how does that tie in to near-Earth objects? We know the Oort cloud is there, we know it's a long way away, we've got a reasonable idea of what it's made of, but it doesn't actually send things towards us on a regular basis. So what's the link between the two? The reason I was at the AstroFest conference is to discuss whether the Oort cloud is in fact the great, dark, untalked-about threat in the solar system. My grandfather postulated that uh, there are as many as a million, million, that's a trillion objects there. Perhaps sometimes when a passing nearby star gives your cloud a shake, we get a massive bombardment of these objects here in the inner solar system. That's very, very bad news for life on Earth because Jupiter, which sometimes sweeps these objects up as they come into the central solar system, um, wouldn't be able to handle all of those. And that's when we've got problems. So we need to understand the Oort Opie cloud, as I like to call it, and so does Patrick Moore, I'm glad to say, to understand whether there's a clear and present danger from there. But more than anything, we have to be able to observe our nearby solar system so that uh, we are prepared. Seeing it six months before it hits, it's way too late. Lembit Opic on the threat of near-Earth objects. And that's it for this AstroFest special. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. And keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.